had a surgical procedure done on his hip this past week, I think on Monday. This wasn't what we would call an emergency surgery. It was a surgery that he needed on his hip because of wear and tear in the military and, and various things. And I know that we can all attest to this fact, but a surgeon is a lot different than an emergency room doctor. There's a difference in how they view things and what they're doing and what they're there for. A surgeon is an initiator. We can literally say that he draws the line and makes the cut, doesn't he? The emergency room doctor is responding to whatever accident or tragedy is brought to him. There is a difference. I believe that many people, uh, Christians even, have a view of God that sees him only as an emergency room doctor. In other words, our God is scrambling around. He bursts into the door of our messed up lives and our emergency room situations, and he just fixes everything. Pulls out his scalpel, stitches up our problems. God sometimes is viewed as someone who merely responds to emergencies and the tragedies that we have in life. The book of Ruth, however, teaches us that our God is not an emergency room doctor who responds to the tragedies of life. Rather, he is a skillful surgeon who, in love and in wisdom, applies the scalpel of grace to our lives and causes the very painful incisions which ultimately result in your healing. That's what the book of Ruth teaches us. That God has a plan to conform you to the image of his son. And he's going to do whatever it takes, regardless of our health or our happiness. He's going to do what it takes to ultimately conform you to the image of the son of God. He is a purposeful surgeon, not a responder. He is an initiator. God, in his sovereign providence, causes Many or all of the painful inflictions and incisions upon the Christians, upon those he loves, in order to make us into what he would have us to be. Do you believe, as a child of God, that nothing happens in your life apart from the wise and skillful appointment of Almighty God? I hope you do, because Ephesians 1.11 reminds us that he does all things. That's, that's, that's uh, exclusive. He does all things according to the counsel of his will. And so we we realize what the Bible teaches. Our God is in control of even the minute details of our lives. And he is weaving them into the tapestry of his eternal purposes. Sometimes things are painful. Sometimes things make no sense. But Ruth teaches us that God himself is in control of your life and mine. So we're at the final section of the book of Ruth, and it reminds us ultimately that God is working for our good and his glory. I've titled it Mission Accomplished because ultimately, on the eternal purpose of things, what God was doing was preserving a chosen line. Now, sometimes we don't get that because we get up, we get caught up with the the characters, and we're looking at the drama of life, but that helps us see something. That yes, we are ordinary people, and God is working in our lives in amazing ways. He's not just working to get his plan done. He's working for your good. Now think about this. He is that awesome to get all of his plans and eternal purposes done, and yet he uses ordinary people like Naomi and Ruth through ordinary events. Death is not something that doesn't ever happen. 
uh, people lose their husbands every day in America. Women. Uh, men lose their wives. So we're talking about ordinary events, but then we have a sovereign God who is working all things. So we see a mission accomplished in the book of Ruth where God preserves the chosen line of Judah, thus bringing about the kingship that's going to start in Israel, correct? And so David is going to be the quintessential servant king. The Bible actually says of David that he's going to serve the people with integrity of heart. And so we see this happening. And ultimately, what we're going to see is the chosen line ends up resulting in the birth of the Son of God in Bethlehem through that same line. So as we track through this text and read it, think about those two things. God is sovereignly. Uh, we, we need to know the certainty that God is exercising His sovereign control even in our personal lives. But He's doing that in order to preserve His people and to accomplish His eternal purpose. Let's read the text together. Ruth chapter 4. Last week we left off with verse 13. We will pick up with verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. Then the woman, or the women, said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. Uh, by the way, track with me as we read, because you're thinking Boaz here, but you will be thinking wrong if you're thinking Boaz at this point. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. Now follow the antecedent. And, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. We're introduced to another Redeemer in this book. The Bible says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. You guys uh, care about, would you allow your neighbors to name your kid? Huh? A son has been born to you, Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father. The writer, the narrator of this book cannot quite contain himself. He's going to go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. There's a reason why the narrator does that. Now, verse 18. Don't you love a good genealogy? Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. All right. First, our thinking must be informed by the certainty of God's sovereignty exercised over our personal lives. Now, that sermon division doesn't stand on its own with one word, does it? And I don't think sermon divisions that have one word are the best way for you to understand what the text is saying. So we make this applicational. It's not just objective in the lives of Ruth and Naomi. It's also in our lives today. So we want our thinking to be informed with the certainty of God's sovereignty. So did y'all know that God is sovereign over marriage? Do you see the strength of the text? And so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. 
we think about this. Uh, Dr. Daniel Block, one of my professors and probably the finest commentary on the book of Ruth you can find, says that verse 13 telescopes nine months of personal history for all of us reading the book of Ruth. Boaz took Ruth to be his wife. Now, this is an expression that establishes the role and responsibility of a husband uh, to move toward the marriage, right? We talked about how that nowadays we have a bride coming down the aisle, which is not the way it was designed in Middle Eastern customs, but it was the husband going to the home, getting the home ready, going to the bride's home, getting her and taking her back to his home, which is obviously the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have y'all forgotten he's coming again, right? So there's a reason for this. Ruth is a widow in chapter 1, now becomes a wife again in chapter 4. Think about the graduation of social progression in her life. A foreigner, the lowest of servants, a maidservant, she says to, uh, on the threshing floor to Boaz, but now she's a wife. Why? It was God who gave her a husband. Y'all, y'all do see that, right? That God is sovereign over marriage. Ruth who is barren in chapter 1, now is going to have a child. By the way, David and Cammie celebrated 40 years of marriage yesterday. You're an old rascal, you know? Well, when God is sovereign over marriage, uh, you you realize that and and you thank the Lord. June 6th, uh, 40 years ago, you got married at Second Baptist Church, right? By the way, folks, if you haven't looked on Facebook at some of these pictures... I mean, this cut well. But what an awesome couple they are to our church family. They model what it means for Jesus to love his church and Christ and the church to respond to the Lord. But marriage, what a wonderful thing. But here's not only sovereign over marriage, but what about sovereign over childbirth and conception? Again, Ruth is barren in chapter 1. She now has a child. You know who the, the subject of the verb of conception is? God. God brought Ruth conception. Uh, That present idiom of grant is unique. I think you have to take it into the context of the fact that she was married to Malon how many years? And she had no children. Take that in context. That means that she was barren. Now in fulfillment of the prayer of the witnesses. Uh, She is able, of course, when they pray, to have a child. Malon could not give her this child, or she was barren, and here now God has blessed her with a prayer. So our God grants Ruth, grants Ruth pregnancy as a gift, as the ladies will talk about in verses 11 and 12. This is a writer's modest way of identifying a miracle. She was barren for 10 years, but now the Lord God has granted her conception. Again, please view this at the same time with a theological perception. Ultimately, The royal line is preserved through the two pious human beings. And the sovereign God of the universe is controlling the times and the seasons. I hope you see that, even in light of what's going on in our country. We should not fear. We should not sweat this. Because God is ultimately in control no matter what. It may be chaotic on the face of this earth, but it's still and quiet and all under control at the throne room of heaven. And I promise you that God is in control. So, does God have a special person picked out for you that you should marry? Well, if you're married today, 
yes, and you're married to that one. Isn't that great? It is. It is absolutely. The person you are married to is your spouse by divine appointment. Some of you are thinking, awesome. And others of you are thinking, why me? No, just kidding. You laugh because you said that this morning, right? I'm kidding. If you are married, you are married by sovereign providence. You meeting your spouse, all the ins and outs of everything involved with that, we take it for granted. But the Bible says that all things, all things are according to the counsel of his will. Now again, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who and are called according. It's not true for everyone. It's true for those people who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. We're talking about believers today, right? We're talking about people who belong to the Lord. Some of you are single. And at this stage of your life, God has sovereignly determined that you are to be single. This does not mean that this is a lifelong calling. It could be the gift of celibacy. But it could also have someone right around the corner. God is sovereign over us. We've heard it sung today. But I want to remind you that the Bible holds you morally accountable for the decisions you make. You can never dodge moral accountability, even in the face of divine providence. No matter your station in life, if you're a child of God, and God, I want to remind you that God is sovereign over the details of your life. God is sovereign over conception. God is sovereign over childbirth. And I think this has something to do to say to the world about abortion, correct? It does. That it's evil. Uh, and, and I have to say, I don't like getting involved in politics at all. Uh, but I want to remind you folks that anytime you vote for someone who would take a human's life, you're going to stand accountable for God for that. And I don't, that, that, that's my whole thing. I, I get it. I get it. I get that there's always going to be this, that, and the other. But here's where your pastor stands. No way will I ever vote for someone who says it's okay to kill a baby. Never. Never. And as a believer, you should not. That's my personal Bible-based decision. When it comes to government and protection of people, that's not protection of people at all. That is absolute condoning murder. Uh, to the song of 52 million babies in our world, it ought to grieve your heart. God brings conception. I know there's evils on both sides. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the one thing that is so vitally important for believers and that is life. So, Ruth is seemingly destined to widowhood and poverty. Yet, when we get to the end of the story, she has a husband and she has a son. Is not this a glorious display of Romans 8.28? Years and years before Paul ever penned it, God was still working for her good and for his glory. Do you remember in chapter 1 when Naomi returns to Bethlehem? She returns impoverished and she is a widow. And the people say... Is this Naomi? Y'all remember that? I'm sure 10 years of difficulty in life. Maybe she looked older. They know she comes back. She went away full. She comes back empty. A life that had been emptied by God at this point. Think about the backdrop of this blessing as we read the text together. Has now, she's now experienced a feeling like nothing you could ever imagine. She went away full, came back empty, but God had restored her in this manner. So these same women are looking at Naomi. And what do they do? They burst forth into praise to God. God has done this. Yahweh has come to you 
And, and even though she said earlier on, God has reached out his hand against me, now these women recognize what happened in their life. They praise the Lord. Why? Who do they know is responsible for the emptying and the blessing? Yes. That's the point. Who's responsible for the emptying of Job in the book of Job? God. Right? Satan is merely a means to an end. His end is sure. God even uses the enemy to accomplish his purpose. For instance, uh, Peter, Satan has sought permission to sift you as wheat. And I've granted him that permission. A child of God is never actually attacked by the enemy in that regard unless it first filters through the hands of the Lord God. Think about this for a moment. How, God, how awesome it is for him to be in control, right? So, this reflects a worldview that doesn't see God at a distance. Why are these women thinking and responding this way? They didn't respond by saying, wow, what a stroke of luck, Naomi. I mean, you, you left for Moab, you lost everything, and then you came back, and God has blessed you. Uh, you went off empty, now you are full. What a stroke of luck. Is that how they respond? No, they know full well that God was arranging the details of Naomi's life in order to bring her good and him glory. And we have hard providences that come into our lives. And we also have smiling providences that come into our lives can we say with Naomi and the women, the hand of God at times can be stretched out against us, but also praise God for the days when there are smiling providences on our lives. We have to be able to accept both. And the women say, God has not left you without a redeemer. We could stand a good dose of these women's understanding of a Christian worldview, of a God-centered understanding of what's going on in the world. Can we not? We need to be able to see this perspective. The good stuff comes from God, right? The good stuff. How we categorize the good stuff. If Joel Osteen was preaching, he'd name you the good stuff, right? But all the bad stuff comes from the devil. Folks, that's not a biblical worldview. Now, sin is in this world. You get that. I hope you understand that even creation is yearning for the return of of the Lord Jesus Christ and for all things to be made new. But the biblical worldview accepts the fact that his hand can go out against us, if need be. Now watch this. They praise the Lord because he has given Naomi a redeemer. And who has been the redeemer throughout the book? Well, it's Boaz. But notice she has given birth to him. And the women gather around Naomi and this little boy. And they say, praise God, he has not left you without a redeemer today. Obed, at this point, becomes the kinsman redeemer. And the Bible says he will be a restorer of life to you. And basically what this means is that he will be a sustainer of you in your old age. Now think about this. Uh, you can't really feel the gravity of this until you look back on Naomi's life. She has no men in her bosom at all. She lost a husband and two sons. She went away full. She comes back empty. But the, the women recognize the significance of Naomi's disposition in the present and her well-being in the future. How God is at work. 
And that first expression, restore of life, highlights new hope for her. All is not lost. She's revived in her spirit. The second expression, nourisher of your old age, looks into the future. It means literally to sustain your gray hair. I think grandbabies can do that, can't they? I've had all three of them. They probably gave me a little bit of gray hair when they were here. But the fact of the matter is they sustain you. We can look at that, of course, in that manner. But this child represents what God has restored to her. But even more, a restorer and a nourisher in the days to come. Again, the perceptiveness of these women to recognize in the birth of this child, Obed, the future well-being of Naomi is absolutely remarkable. Uh, they don't get a theological course on the side to figure all this out. They're just responding with a Christ-centered worldview where they know that God has worked in such a way that this baby is going to be a restorer of life for her and a nourisher for her. Next, the women acknowledge Ruth. Now, this may not be the most, this, of course, may be the most remarkable statement of all. And we need to read it again, returning to the text. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. She has given birth to him. Ruth, does she love Naomi? Your daughter-in-law who loves you. Now, this word here emphasizes a covenant commitment of love, not an emotional term. So love is not demonstrated here primarily by words. And I would tell you that it's pretty easy to say the words I love you. It's a lot harder to act on it. So in the Hebrew understanding of love, it always meant action tied in the, in the, in the strength of hesed or loving covenantal kindness. It means action. In other words, you place the welfare of the other ahead of oneself. Could that solve the problems in the United States of America? Uh, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, could that not solve racism? I think biblically consistent people get this. We know full well what it means to be biblically consistent, right? But can we live the Ten Commandments? No, you can't. You can't keep them perfectly. What you got to have is a Savior. Amen? And the fact of the matter is that ethic will be lived out in life. Now consider this. Again, Dr. Block points out that Ruth, more than anyone else in the history, embodies the fundamental principle of the nation of Israel's ethic. And that ethic is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, Deuteronomy 6.5, and love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. So think about this. Moses instructs the Israelite to love the stranger as they love themselves. Now, ironically, it is the stranger from Moab who shows the Israelites what this means. Ruth gives birth to the Goel. The barren woman has been opened up. Ruth is better for you than seven sons. Why do they say this? Why does the writer say better for you than seven sons? Sons. Well, that reflects the ancient Israelite view that the ideal family consisted of seven sons. Some of you guys are falling behind, right? That's a lot of babies, isn't it? Especially when you throw a couple of girls in there between trying to get seven sons. But the fact is, that's what they viewed it as. This is amazing. Those, these women placed the value of Ruth over seven 
sons. Now just think about this in divine providence. Uh, This is an incredible compensation for the two sons that she's lost. For Naomi. Think about this. She lost two sons, but the Bible says the women praise God and they confess to her that this daughter-in-law who loves you with a covenant faithfulness type of love. In other words, what brought about her her loyalty and commitment to Naomi superseded in that commitment just the touchy-feely, emotional, sensational love that she may have for Boaz. Even though I believe she had full agape-type love for Boaz. And, you know, you have people come in for marital counseling. I just don't love this person anymore. Well, that's, that's garbage. Right? Because commitment overrides your understanding of an emotional-based love that can go away with time. If you're only marrying that mate for the sentimentality of emotional love that can pass, come and go, then you're missing the point. It's a covenantal commitment of the will made at the marriage altar. Are y'all listening? And so this love highlights that. So Naomi's response is given in verse 16. The Hebrew word is that she took the child, placed him on her bosom, and became his nanny. Now this action has nothing to do with wet nursing. The word bosom, or the front of one's body, is where one holds a child. It's never used for the breast. So we should view this as a grandmother, right? A grandmother gratefully accepting her status and tenderly receiving the baby. Again, think about the previous experience of Naomi. If you haven't listened to the sermons, you need to go back and listen to chapter 1 and chapter 2. But just consider this. Her bosom was emptied of her husband and two sons, and now she holds in her bosom this child. Now, verse 17 gives us this, and I told you the writer is giddy to get to this point. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to you, Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. This expression is literally this. And the neighbors called for him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. Now, this doesn't mean that Boaz and Ruth could have not said, we're not naming him Obed, okay? It's not saying it's against what they're saying, but this boy is viewed as a servant of God and a servant of Naomi. You know what the name Obed means? I just told you. It means he who serves or a servant. Now, ultimately, uh, again, uh, the greatest king in Israel's history other than the King Jesus, was who? David. And he was going to serve the people with integrity of heart. He will shepherd them is the actual word you find in Psalm 78. So David will be a descendant, will have a descendant named Jesus Christ. And what does the Bible say about him? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And again, note the surprise at the end of verse 17. The narrator doesn't highlight the resolution of a personal crisis as much, or the characters of the book, what does he highlight? He highlights the historical significance of what's taking place with Jesse, and in particular, David. And again, certainly in the providence of God, he's working through the genuine God-fearing people of Boaz and Naomi and Ruth. He's doing this, and he obviously rewards the characters in this grand divine drama, right? He obviously does this. But he's working out a divine plan for Israel and the kings that will fulfill that godly line. 
That's what God is ultimately doing. He's doing so much more in our lives than we can ever see. Y'all understand this? Now, we live in the here and now, but do you ever just stop and think, God, what are you doing in my life right now for your eternal purpose? He is working to accomplish his purposes in our lives. So God is working for generations to come in the book of Ruth. He's already working for generations to come. Understand God is doing far more than just making Naomi whole. He's preparing the way for the Son of God to come into this world. That's amazing. Can you fit into your theology the truth that God is ultimately behind even our calamity? You haven't read your Bible correctly if you can't fit that into your theology. There's just no question about it. We see Job is an incredible understanding of this. Again, Satan is a means to an end in the book of Job. Job learns to kiss the rod when it's all said and done. Does he not? The rod of discipline. And how about the end of Job's life? God gave him back sevenfold all that he took from him. Did he not? We see this clearly. So, are you in the place in your life, possibly, where you're doubting God's covenant love and faithfulness to you? Isn't it easy to do that? Well, especially with the media and what they present out there for us, that it's just chaotic and the world's, you know, just... We see all these things. But personally, we can get to the place where we doubt the covenantal love of God. As Michael W. Smith says in this song, God has not forgotten us. I would even use another word. God has not forsaken us. He has not forsaken his people. Job honestly confessed that, God, it seems like you're shooting these arrows straight through me with poison. I mean, he's honest about the difficulties of life. But if you belong to Jesus Christ, folks, God is for you. Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? But you say, I don't see God being good to me. Again, if God be for us, who can be against us? You can rest assured that God is working these things out in your life for your good and his glory. Do you trust him like that? He's not turned his back on you. If you are a covenant child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then God is as faithful to you as the day that he saved you. Or better yet, he's as faithful to you as the day he chose you and him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4. God loves his children and he is covenantly faithful to you if you belong to him. Are you living, church family, in such a way that you're proving that you feel that God is faithless to you? How are you living this out as a reality? Well, God didn't save my marriage. God didn't save my job. If God was faithful to me, then I would be faithful to him. Now, I'm telling you, we would probably never say that out loud like I just did. But I'm telling you, there are Christians on every corner, even in this church, whose lives bear that out. God, if you're going to hold out on me and you say you're faithful to me, then I'm going to hold out on you. And people live like that every single day. God hasn't met my financial aspirations like I think he should. I'm not going to give another dime down there at that church. You say, preacher, you, you figured out a way to get on tithing. No, I'm just telling you, folks, if we can't trust him with, you know, your heart often is tied to your wallet with a string. And wherever your heart goes, that's, that's what that thing is doing. It's going here. It's going there. You know, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, right? Uh, that's that's going to be true. But the fact is, the seeds of depravity run really deep 
in us. For us to even have that mind racing and thinking, God, you're just holding out on me. You're not covenantly faithful to me. It just it highlights our depravity, doesn't it? And how we think. Uh, you can get to the place where you feel God has given you a raw deal. And he doesn't deserve your faithfulness or your obedience. But on the authority of scriptures, if you belong to God, he is working all things for your good and his glory. The reality is, we owe God everything. That's the real reality. And I will say to you by way of confession, if he cut my life off today, or caused me to live in abject poverty for the rest of my life, or hit me with a sickness for the rest of my life, God has still given me way more than I ever deserved. And he's done the same thing for you if you're saved. Because the world can take all these things away from you, but they can't take the cornerstone away, right? They can't take Jesus away. And eternity is a whole lot longer than this world, right? Or the amount of time you have on earth. Who are we to tell God if you don't put out, I'm not going to follow you? The Bible says we walk by, not by sight. We imagine that because things are not working out just the way we have chosen them to work out, that God is not interested in us, or that he's kind of the um, absent landlord, or we have irretrievably got off the map from him. But in light of the book of Ruth, in light of the witness of the scriptures, it's almost blasphemous for us to think in those terms, right? You can trust the character of God. And I want to remind you that even a reverent, obedient Christian can find him or, self, him or herself walking in pitch black darkness. And that tunnel can be extremely difficult. You can feel absolutely trapped in that tunnel. And there is no guarantee. We think there is because of the health and wealth guys preaching. But there is no guarantee built into your Christian discipleship that this is going to be easy and this is going to be bright. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, come follow me and it's going to be difficult, Right? Take up your cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Or the Bible doesn't tell us that our obedience to the Lord will automatically shield us from the dangers and difficulties of life. That's just not true. It's not true. We do sometimes feel that our name has become Mara. Don't we? Y'all remember chapter 1? She went away, named Naomi, which means pleasant. She returned back, call me Mara. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. The word of God would have your thinking informed with the certainty of God's sovereignty being exercised through love and grace. Marriage, conception, a Christian worldview where the women are praising God because they know God is in control. All right. I got to land this plane. Okay. Point number two. God is at work preserving his people and developing his eternal purposes. When you pick up in verse 18, uh, you're reminded of a genealogy. Do you like reading those? Yeah, yeah, we, we know that people represent epics of time and the working of God. But here, this short genealogy, I think of ten people, uh, runs fully into an eternal purpose. Uh, again, Matthew, if you'll flip there. If you, don't, if you can't get there before I do, just hold on. But Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, listen to the word of the Lord. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Isn't that interesting? And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Whose genealogy is this? The son of God, right? Now verse 16. 
And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So I want to remind you that God is preserving his people. Everybody that God sought to preserve in that line, check it out, we're getting close. He did it. He preserved those people in that line. But he was also developing an eternal purpose. And that eternal purpose was the birth of the Son of God on earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, here is Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. They're just ordinary people who experienced the providential ups and downs of life. Anybody been there? There's providential ups and downs of life. It is through these ordinary people and ordinary events that God is working out his eternal purpose. And it'd be very easy for you to say, well, that was Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. That's not me. What does the Bible say? And we know that all things work together for good. That's just not Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. That's you. That's me, right? So we need the certainty that God is working, but also understand that he's preserving his people. He's developing his eternal purpose in us. Think about Ruth. Maybe she was skipping through the streets of Moab, and she's a little bitty girl, and she grows up, and all of a sudden she catches the eye of an Israelite, of all things. And she marries him, but ten years later he dies. And then she makes, out of her own volitional will, a decision to go back with Naomi, right? Concurrence. She makes that decision to go with her mother-in-law, and then her hap was to fall on the field of Boaz, catches another man's eye, and bang! She lands in the genealogy of the Son of God. Isn't that amazing? Y'all don't get near as excited about that as I do, do you? But that's okay. I just, I'm trying to get you to see, folks, that God works in your ordinary life to accomplish His divine purposes. And, and you may not see this now, but if you'll just start looking back, when you think you should have zigged and you zagged or whatever, you're going to find out that this thing is straight and narrow. You're going to find that God led you each step of the way. Again, ordinary things take place in her life. She lost a husband. Uh, she has poverty. She has difficulty. But this was all part of the eternal purpose of God. This is how God works. I want to remind you that our God loves and cares about every little piece that he puts into the mosaic of life for his glory. Don't think for a moment that you're a robot just doing what God wants you to do. When you get to heaven, he's going to say, well, I used you up pretty good. Now, folks, he's working for your good. But at the same time, he's working for his glory. So you fit into the purpose of God. He works for your good. What does that do for us? I don't know about y'all, folks, but it motivates me. It motivates me to want to obey my Lord. Right? It motivates me to do my best before Almighty God. Does it motivate you to do this? To know that our lives are being used for His eternal purpose. That ought to strip away any thoughts of meaningless in your life. Meaninglessness in your life. Correct? It gives me a tremendous purpose to know that God is working out all things according to the counsel of His will. And that, that means the details of my life. That means the details of your life. Now the world will tell you that you're here today because some lightning and dust got together and formed a blob. And bang! There you are. Right? That's what, the, that's what they say. Talk about a life of meaninglessness. Now they tell us that everybody needs self-esteem. But they tell you you came from primordial soup. Y'all see how dumb that is? They're telling us to have esteem and to esteem others and see value in people. 
There is no value if you came from a primordial soup where lightning hit something and the blob came up. But it does mean something if the Almighty created you. And the Almighty created you for His divine purpose. That gives life meaning. That gives us a purpose to live and decisions that we make. So if you fit into the eternal purpose of God, then life is worth living. And God will glorify Himself through you. Thus we strive, and all of us ought to strive, to be obedient children of God. Even through the pains of life. Even through difficulties, we strive to be obedient children of God. Why? Because God is working out His eternal purpose. Here's my question for those who doubt the goodness of God. Can you trust the eternal God of gods who put on human flesh and endured the pain that you and I deserved and took it to the cross of Calvary and bore your sins in His body on the tree? Can you trust that kind of God? Folks, the ultimate good for you was that God was most glorified in sending His Son to this world to be a propitiation for your sins. You can't get any better than that. Can you trust this kind of God? Can you trust this God? No matter how tough the times, can you trust a God who would die for you? That's a good question, isn't it? Would you trust a God who would die for you? He sent His Son to be our kinsman redeemer, to bear our sins, to save us from eternal punishment in hell. Can you trust that kind of God? If you can't, then you don't have anything to hold on to in this life. If you can't trust Him, you don't have anything to hold on to in this life. You will have nothing to hold on to as well when you fall into the life to come. There'll be absolutely nothing under your feet whatsoever. Can you trust the God of Naomi and Ruth? Can you? The book of Ruth provides a microcosm of the whole. Think about this. They were surrounded by God's covenantal love. God was not faithless toward them. He was faithful the whole time. They experienced his covenant grace and redemption. Yet in those relationships, God was doing something on a macro scale, preparing his people for the coming of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you all understand all that? Do you understand how our God works? By the way, Jesus is coming again. Can I show you one more verse? First Peter. My point is, he planned his first coming. He took care of all the details. I want to remind you that he's coming again. All right? He is. Just think about these verses for a moment. The Bible says in chapter 3 of, first P- of 2 Peter, For they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these the world then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Listen to this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, folks... Is the end sure? Is Jesus coming back? How are you supposed to live? Get you a tent and go out on the back 40 and camp out with uh, pistachios? What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to live your godly uh, life like Ruth and Naomi in the midst of all this. Waiting for and hasting to the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise... 
we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Folks, that's coming. One final verse. Here it is. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your and lean. It's, it's, it's really the picture of leaning on a cat. Lean not on your own in all your ways. Acknowledge him. And what does it say? He will make straight, is the translation, your path. To God be the glory. Uh, in just a few moments, I'll be in the back. If there's any kind of decision you need to make, maybe you don't know the kinsman redeemer. I'm telling you, folks, just reading the book of Ruth, I'd want to know him, right? I'd want to know the kinsman redeemer who came and did everything it took to save my soul. Jeffrey, Michelle, 